<laughs> how many minutes? Uh, all right. So uh, I'm going to, in real time, be editing this right now. Okay, so be ready for that. Uh, hopefully it all comes together in a nice, succinct way, but I've had a few extra weeks to think this through as we've done it. And this is what I, this is what I want us to do. Um, how many of you all remember? Well, actually, how many of you right now, when I say the phrase, what is your love language? What do, you, do you know what I mean by that? What is your love language? Some of y'all have that, right? So it's been a few years since Gary Chapman wrote this book called The Five Love Languages, um, but it certainly had its season, right? Where it was circulating, saturated in all kinds of different, at least in some circles. Um, and then I was definitely one of those people who it came across. If you didn't hear of Gary Chapman's book, The Five Love Languages, he basically says there's five ways that people like to communicate or receive love. One is by receiving gifts. One is by words of affirmation. One is by acts of service. One is by quality time. One is by physical touch. And he kind of made the case that all of us tend to want to receive love and give love in one of these ways. And so the book garnered lots of fans and a few critics, all right? Um, and in the midst of that, no matter, no matter where you fall in that kind of uh, opinion, it had its time, it had this moment wherein everyone was trying to figure out their love language. And I remember when this first came across my, um, uh, 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 I don't know, pers perspective when it first got brought into my attention, um, it was the person who did premarital counseling with my wife and I. And um, this is how it was given. He got me a copy, he handed it to me when Emily was already like on the way out the door and said, hey, read this. Before I read this book, I was just shooting blind. Like, all right, okay, so I'm going to take a look at this book, and what he meant was this, I was showing love to my wife in a way that I like to receive love, but not really taking into consideration the way she likes to receive love. I was trying to love as best as I could, but it wasn't as effective as I thought it should be. And so we tend to often be even offended by that. Like we try our best. We, we, can't you just accept the way that I love you, the way that I want to give that to you? But there's a, 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 like a communication breakdown that happens wherein maybe you are not uh, bringing into conversation how that person likes to receive love. And I think that's the biggest aha moment of this entire book and the whole purpose that it got as much attention as it did is that you could accidentally, uninformed, be showing love to someone in a way that they don't necessarily receive it, and so you're shooting blind. Now, I think it's common for humans in general to act like this. I think it's common because we get caught up in our own thoughts and ideas. We communicate things and forget to consider that there's another side to this story. There is somebody else who might have their way of communicating, thinking, receiving, translating forms of communication. And on top of that, we like to claim agency and personalize things like it, I get to choose these things, but we don't. We have to have this negotiation between two bodies if we're gonna get along. And so what happens when we do that is we begin to define forms of love in very loose ways, in lots of different ways that we get to use it and communicate it and say it. And have you ever noticed that you say, I love you to someone you have a relationship with, but then you also love hamburgers? Or, I don't know, is there kale burgers? I always try to kind of broaden that a little bit for everyone in the service. But you also communicate love for maybe your animals in the same way that you might say that you love someone else. I love this, I love that. We use that word fairly flippantly over and over. Um, and so one of the things I wanted to do is like, so how do people tend to define love? And I looked up a pop culture website and there are 10 people giving 10 different definitions of what they think love is. 
I think you'll like some of them. Some of them maybe fall short, but this is it. Love is security, plain and simple. Love is respect. That's helpful. Love is a give and take relationship. Love is being in sync with another person until you're not, right? Love is vulnerability. Love is commitment. Love is equality with each other or love is simply growing old together. Now there's 10 people with 10 completely different ideas. Some of them overlap. I would even say they capture pieces of what the fullness of love is, but you can understand how even the definition itself gets blurry, convoluted, difficult to nail down. In fact, you think about the different ways that generationally we have communicated love or even culturally the way that changes when you just step into a a different culture that's not the one that is typical to you. Do you all remember in the late 80s or 90s, the ultimate way to show affection to a significant other was the (laughs) mixtape. Now, my wife was the one that reminded me of this one, so I got to give her credit, but it didn't even matter how you found these songs. You could have pressed record on the radio to all of your favorite pop songs so you could curate the most significant group of songs that tells this person exactly how you feel about them. And so the mixtape was the ultimate love language. Gary Chapman, you forgot that chapter inside of your book. But look across globes. In South Africa, they have beaded love letters that, depending on the intricacy, the color, it communicates different kinds of love, intensities of love, love for um, somebody who you might be romantically interested in, but also for, you know, a love for a friend or a sibling. In Fiji, one of the most um, powerful ways you could communicate love to someone is by giving them a whale tooth, specifically from the sperm whale, the whale tooth. I don't know, I've never been given a whale tooth. Maybe it has more emotional impact. But you can see how if you're from a Western American mindset, it's almost like it doesn't even translate. But for them, it does. You think about in, inside of uh, Finland, this is one of the funny kind of ones that I caught. There is a wife-carrying championship, and it is touted as one of the strongest forms of communicating love. You literally hoist your wife up on your shoulders, run up a hill, and depending on who gets there first, they love their wife the most. <laughs> what? How often you were to engage in this championship tells how often and quickly you are able to prove how much you love your significant other. And then the final one, I'll just leave it with this one. Pigs in Germany is a sign of affection. And so it doesn't matter. It could be a chocolate pig. It could be you hand drawing a pig, but the ultimate form, and I can't say I disagree. If you get a chubby little potbelly pig, nothing says I love you more than that. I mean, that's the cutest little thing ever. But the ultimate form is physically getting a real pig. Pigs communicate love in Germany. Okay, so, so think about it. We're always as a society trying to define, redefine, recapture, then communicate the ways in which we love and still it seems to have some kind of mystical, undescribable, how, how do we even fully capture what love is? And I think what they're capturing is what happens when you leave something like this up to public opinion and to different variables and personalize it the way that we tend to do in our culture. So with all of these things, this is is where I want us to land. Um, How do we anchor a definition of love in some way, shape, or form that helps us get to a consistent or uh, trustworthy way in which we can operate? And, And this is what vows are meant to do at a marriage, right? 
Like, I don't know how you define, we define, but we're going to publicly and in front of God and all, you know, you say the terms, all of these witnesses, I'm going to proclaim that when I say I love you, I mean in sickness and health till death do us part to cherish you. Um, It's a form of affection, a a commitment and endurance even at times through seasons that are difficult when you're not quite in sync. And the idea is always just to do this. Hold up, hold up. I don't know how you define it, I don't know how you're doing it, but what we need to do is make sure we're on the same page as to the parameters that we are agreeing to and clearly speak out to solemnly swear before God and all of these witnesses. Do you see how vows accomplish that? It's one of the ways in which we try to make agreements before we make commitments in the midst of something. Now, now here's the question. It sounds silly, but does God have a love language? Does God have a love language? Is there a way in which he prefers to receive or have you approach him or show love or display affection to him that we will attempt to, just like we do with humans, to hijack it and say, I get to define love for you. I get to be the one who approaches you the way I feel best, or are we just making it up and shooting blind in the midst of it? I want to ask you to open up to 1 Peter 4. Open up to 1 Peter 4 real quickly. We're just going to go through a handful of verses. Um, in the midst of, and then I'm going to read a few other verses that I'm not going to have you open up. But open up to 1 Peter 4. Before we get there, here's your first question. Is there a wrong way to love God? Isn't there something inside you that wants to be like, no. I mean, I, that's, right? Well, like we, we individualize that so much. How could there be possibly a wrong way? Well, Jeremiah says this. What do I care about incense from Sheba or sweet calamus from a distant land? Your burnt offerings are not acceptable. Your sacrifices do not please me. Now, I've never had incense from Sheba or sweet calamus in my entire life, but I'm assuming they're luxurious, expensive items, and God is saying this isn't acceptable. Isaiah 1 says, the multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? I have more than enough burnt offerings, rams of fattened animals, uh, rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come before me, Who has asked this of you, this trampling of my court? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moon, Sabbaths, convocations. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. It's starting to get kind of harsh, right? They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Now, again, we come to this kind of like our kids come at us with crafts. No matter what this looks like, I mean, it's, it's an expression of love. And we have a hard time saying, well, you know, maybe there's something off about that. And surely that's not what's happening with the kid. But we're also not children necessarily going to God. Because listen, why is God being so harsh? Well, here's the rest of that verse. I hide my eyes from you even when you offer many prayers. I am not listening because your hands are full of blood. Because your hands are full of blood. Then Amos 5.21, this is one of the most famous verses in the scriptures. It says, I hate, I despise your religious festivals and assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. And here's why. But let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never failing stream. And so here's the, here's the answer, I think, to the question. Yes, God does have a love language. 
he has a way in which he wants us to approach him. There are both wrong ways to love God and it is possible to love God in the right ways but with the wrong motives. And he's distinguishing between these two. He's trying to help us to understand these things. In fact, um, one, one is like a, a famous theologian writing on the topic of worship. It's this book called Engaging with God. Um, he gives this comment. He says this, we need to ask what role God plays in the engagement or relationship of which is true and acceptable worship. At one level, we must discover from our own self-revelation in scripture what pleases God. We cannot simply determine for ourselves what is honoring to him. Later, he includes this worship or adoration and devotion of the living God is essentially an engagement with him on the terms that he proposes and in a way that he alone makes possible. That's, that's, it's kind of hard for us to grasp that, right? In, our, in the way that our culture is set up because there's like this reciprocated, non-authoritative, we want to approach each other on equal footing. And I think that is often a good way for, for, for humans to engage one another. But if you didn't realize it, you're not on the th- same authoritative footing as God. And so the relationship is different. Like, don't, don't I get a say in how I get to choose you, God? And, and this suggests that our expressions of love here are determined by God while we want to reverse those things. Now we say God is love and all the time, it, it, it's, it's in the scriptures, the verse we're about to read here. We say God is love all the time, um, but let's read the context where that comes from. First Peter 4, 7 through 12, it says this. Dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Now, when we say God is love, what we really mean by that is we tend to have a predetermined definition of what love is. We project that onto God, and then we'll even attempt to hold God accountable to the definition that we just made up. This isn't a new concept. We've talked about this before. Amen? Are you tracking with me? Amen? <laughs> so, so not only have we created a construct uh, uh, um, or even an idol of what we think love is we've built in our own imaginations but then we get disappointed or even angry at God when he doesn't live up to the definition that we created has anyone been there before I, I know I've been there I've definitely been there and so it's important that we not only understand that maybe we're prone to wander but we're also prone to want to control the conditions by which we love God. It's a way of acting or feeling like we're doing what's right even though we've hijacked it ourselves. And so we think this idea that God is love, and, um, and I wanna read one more commentary, just a quick little excerpt from the NIV application. It says, John, it's important that we know what John is not saying. John is saying that God is love, that all of his activity is loving. Love is the essence of his being, but the reverse is not the case. We cannot say, in other words, that God is love as if any display of affection suddenly qualifies as divine. John is carefully defining the character of God, who, uh, who God, sorry, the character of who God is and what it means to live in relation to him, okay? So, so um, our definition of love is not God, but love comes from God, who is love, but more importantly, he is the source of love. 
It all flows out from him. It all comes from God. And um, even when we don't realize that that's true, we don't realize that we've actually even taken little bits and pieces of the essence. The scent is what um, some of theologians of the past would say. The scent of love that we've just gleaned off of him, even if we've never had direct interactions with God or church or a religious devotion to him. Now, one of the things I want us to see is that because he is the source, he now has a different placement of authority. He is the definer. He is the litmus test by which we gauge ourselves against. He is the measurement. He is the entirety of the gauge of goodness and love that we are meant to come and, and, and learn from. And, so, and so, uh, so we are to, on a continual basis, come before God and submit ourselves to him. We learn what and how to love God by reading his scriptures, by getting to know him, not knowing about him, but getting to know him in a personal way. And John says we are to love all others the same way as a result of this. And so it becomes this test that how we love others lets others know how much we know and love God. Do you see how that makes sense? It's almost like this formula that's working one way and back in the other direction. And so if you learn anything about love today, it is that learning to love God has to do with recognizing this, that we need God to even know how to love God. That we need God to even know how that word is defined, how we are supposed to anchor it in him. And so there's this surrendering effect that is a loving act saying, God, you understand better than we do. And so outside of the fact that you have defined it for us, we don't even know how to love. We don't even know what it means to understand what this word is even defined as it was scrambled for us. And we can go back to Genesis and talk about how God made things good because he did make them good. Life was flourishing, love was flourishing. And then when Adam and Eve rebelled, everything got disordered. The design was corrupted, things changed, and so did our definitions of life and love and the way in which we are supposed to interact with God, but not just God, with each other. And so the prayer, if there is a prayer this morning, is, Lord, as simple as it is to say all we need to do is love each other, we have to admit and come before you and say, Lord, we need your help to know what that even means. And then this next little section here that I think is really important is as you begin to look at the different ways in which God has described love is patient, love is kind, do, do your work. Go through uh, the Corinthians 13 verses. Go through all of the different pieces and descriptions of God. But when we look at the original idea, God has set out some boundaries, some vows, if you will, in the form of the Ten Commandments. And so if you didn't realize it, that's a, that's a moment where he says, hey, here are our boundary lines. This is the way in which we are going to agree to love each other, my people and you. And he uses wedding language. I will call you out as my treasure in the midst of all the other nations. God selects the people of Israel. All of this is wedding language. And so when we stand on Mount Sinai with Moses and all the people of Israel, he goes up and, 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 and receives the Ten Commandments. I'm not going to go through all of them with you, but I do want to name a few of them. You shall have no other gods before me. 
seems a lot like monogamous loyalty. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven or on earth beneath or in the waters below. Catch that. Since I know you're going to struggle with vow one, I'm actually building in a second vow that helps fence in the opportunity for you to actually break the first one. That's grace. Three, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Four, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land. Now, did you catch that all of these were vertical vows being made between us and God, but then it starts to become horizontal. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet anything that belongs to to your neighbor. And so what I want us to see, like books have been written on the Ten Commandments. You can go as deep into this as you want. But at the very beginning, the vows made, the the commitments, the defining things by which God says, this is how we are to love, we see that, that, that not only is there a wrong way to love God, that he has a language and he has prescribed something, but that he has preferences in the midst of it and they are deeply intertwined with not just loving him and him loving us, but us taking that example of love and loving others. So it directly is related. And if you didn't catch it, John says that, you know, if, if you love me, you will obey my commands and I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you. So he knows that we're gonna struggle. I'm gonna even give you a helper. Then he says, look, I wanna reemphasize this idea that these are connected. The first half and the second half are intimately tied together because he says this in John, or sorry, Matthew 22. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus says this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like this. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So we've been given some vows, and we have been given um, a connection that the way that we have this relationship with God should affect the way that we have a relationship with others. And what happens, the, the people of Israel do everything perfectly they keep perfect covenant fidelity with their God. They don't cross the boundaries. Do you remember what happens when Moses comes down off the mountain? They're literally making a golden calf idol. Aaron's looking like, I don't know, it just, the, all the gold fell in the pot and came out looking like this. Do you, this isn't like a joke. This really happens. You're like, what are you talking? It, it just doesn't come out looking like a cow, man. What are you doing, Aaron? It's like Aaron got caught in the act and he's like, uh, I don't know, it just... I, I don't know. And Moses breaks the Ten Commandments and goes back up. And he is so gracious to us. God is so loving that he says, let's try it again. They, they don't do it well. And he says, okay, let me, let me create a sacrificial system. Let's try it again. They don't do that well. And ultimately they say, look, we're going to need an ultimate final sacrifice And this is where verse nine goes. It says, this is how God showed us his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for us. So there's sacrificial understanding built into the nature. What is expected is that there might be reciprocation. What is unexpected is that God says, I am the initiator, I am the sacrifice, and I am the one who will continually make a way for your people to come back and be redeemed over and over and over. So what is that communicating about the definition of love? Let me finish with verse 9 here, or verse 11. It says, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. 
No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. And so the specific love language of God is that love is sacrificial. It is initiated by the source of God. It is the definition of who he is and it transfers to his people like a revolutionary moment. That we would take what we've given and we would give it out that we would become the essence of love because the God who loved us first has loved us and we then become that love source for other people, that this revolution begins to spread and in turn complete. It says God lives in us and his love is made complete in us, that there is still love left to be had on this earth. I'm sure you've seen moments where it was needed. And so he who created a good work in us will not stop until it is finished. But are we willing to say that back to God? You, God, have given us a commissioning to complete the good works that you have started, to participate in that and to carry this revolution of love out into all the things that we do. And so here today, this isn't a conclusion so much as it is an introduction to God's love and an invitation to explore these parameters, to get to know God and let him redefine what love is for you. I guarantee you've gotten it wrong somewhere, somehow, some way. And so it is our job to continually, as we are drawn to want to redefine, as we are drawn to wander away from God, redefine love on our own terms, redefine it on the world's terms, challenge the loving nature of God based on our definition or to put someone else, something else, anything else, in the position and the object of our affection and worship. The invitation is this, you have to continually go back to him and say, God, course correct me. Recalibrate me according to you because you are the source and I can only get so far without this getting too blurry. I have to keep coming back and relearning from you because God has a love language and it involves this submission to his authority, sacrificial devotion to him, loving service to others and God's kingdom, but ultimately, and this is what I want you to see, the method is the message, right? And over and over and again, God says, it's okay, I forgive you. Let's try again. It's okay, I forgive you. Let's try again. It's okay, I forgive you. Let's try again. And so if you did not see forgiveness as one of the definitions inside the midst of this love, then you didn't hear it, you didn't see it, you didn't get close enough to feel it. Because when you do, the ultimate result is that you can't help but to go out submitting to his authority, loving other people in the kingdom of heaven and forgiving along the way because it's not going to uh, be easy. There will be pains, there will be hardships, there will be offenses. And so let's take a cue from the source of love who is the definer and authority of love today. Let me pray for us. We'll ask the band to go ahead and come up before we jump into communion. And so, Father, may we be committed to you in this ever-increasing measure, Lord. Like, we're better at loving today than we were yesterday. May we be better tomorrow at loving you and each other based on the parameters you have defined. But it starts with us recognizing that. God, let us submit to your authority. Let us come back and resubmit over and over and say, God, course correct me. Where have I gone off course? 
And if it's your kindness that leads us to repentance, then God, can we just swim in the essence of your kindness? Where's the golden calf that as soon as we make the vow, we mess it up? Where is that in our life? Expose that, Lord. God, may we be committed to knowing that we will fall short and we will faithfully trust you because you have a great track, work, uh, track record of forgiveness. So we trust that, God, no matter how far we've fallen, no matter how far we've walked away, no matter how differently we have defined the things that you have created, God, you forgive us and accept us back. And so it is with freedom and delight and joy that we come into your presence, not fear or condemnation. Standing upright in your light is not possible without you lifting our heads. So may we bask in that, Lord. May we live in the fullness of your love. And may we live like people who have been forgiven, loved, lavishly, powerfully, um, and without exception. Lord, thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.